Okay, so uh, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. No problem. I'm sure we're going to get into some really interesting stuff here. Um, uh, my best friend was very, uh, very excited that I was going to get to chat to you, and he's convinced that you will convert me. Um, so okay. <laughs> no pressure. Huh? I'll do my best, but... <laughs> I don't, you know, I can only present the evidence. True. But then, well, he keeps arguing to me that Christianity is the most logical and rational belief that you could possibly hold in the entire world. So uh, maybe, yeah, maybe you'll would... push me further down that road. Okay, perfect. Um, so, so one of the things he uh, encouraged me to do was to go and read the Bible because he kept arguing, we mm -hmm. kept arguing about things. And then he was like, well, you know, you haven't read the Bible. How can you possibly comment? And I was like, right, okay, fine, I'll go do it. So I'm making my way, mm -hmm. I'm still making my way through Genesis at the minute. It's a slow read, but I'll get there. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things I've been like wondering about is basically to what extent I should be taking it literally and what extent I should be taking it metaphorically. So like, what is your take on on how, yeah, what's your take on, on the topic? Yeah, I mean, that's a complicated question. Uh, we need, what I would say is like, literal and metaphorical or modern categories that's not how the ancient audience would have thought when they're reading this they're not be going okay this chapter is literal this is metaphorical this next one's literal they just didn't think in terms of those categories so take genesis 2 24 a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh okay obviously a man and his wife are literal but becoming one flesh is metaphorical that's just how people talk even today if i told you i saw a car flying down the road you understand, I mean, the car and the road are literal, but flying is metaphorical for going fast. So we need to understand that sometimes the biblical authors are talking metaphorically. Sometimes they're talking literally. Uh, sometimes we're not entirely sure. There's debate about certain things. So take Joshua chapter 10. Uh, Joshua pronounces this uh, prayer and asks for God for the to have the sun wait in the sky and the moon wait in the sky and so they could finish the battle. Some scholars think that that's literally Joshua telling the sun to stop moving in the sky. But a lot of more recent scholars have looked more into the cultural context and have found that maybe not. There's this language in the ancient Near East of talking about stars and the moons waiting in the sky. Uh, it just is normal celestial events. It's just part of their language. They don't mean they literally stopped. They just meant that, they, you know, this is how they would talk about celestial bodies appearing on certain days. So that might be more just mis us misunderstanding the cultural context. Uh, take another issue, the Torah itself. Uh, a lot of scholars uh, in the past would have read it and going, okay, so, you know, here's the law. If you commit adultery, death. If you murder, death. You know, if you commit certain acts, death. Probably not, though. Uh, the Torah was not the civil law of Israel, as much as we want to interpret it that way. It was more understood as judicial wisdom. Uh, They're teaching you how to think about justice how to think about living in Canaan in that day and time. Uh, so take the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, there's no evidence the Code of Hammurabi was ever really used in a court of law in ancient Mesopotamia or ancient Babylon. Likewise, we would say the same for the Torah. Uh, judges would study the circumstances of cases and pronounce a judgment, but they would study the Torah to understand what justice looked like. This is what justice looks like. But you don't always go, well, someone committed adultery, let's open the Torah up, death, let's go. Like, that's not how you would have understood it. So you might say, if we're talking about literal and metaphorical, we move that more towards the metaphorical category. But 
I mean, not really. I would say it's its own own category. It's judicial wisdom. It's sort of like when we read Proverbs. We read Proverbs and we're like, okay, well, this is obviously teaching us how to think about being wise. It's not telling us literally do's and don'ts. Sometimes it has that. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, we need to understand it more as trying to train our brains to understand wisdom. This is what the Torah was doing. And I can go through numerous examples like this as well. Uh, so when I when people read the Bible, uh, it's good to read it. But remember, the Bible was just not thrown out of heaven. It was given to a community. Uh, and quite frankly, in a lot of ways, a community of scholars. I mean, Luke was a physician. Paul was trained when he was writing his letters. He was very uh, much trained in the Jewish schools. Uh, Mark was a scribe. Matthew would have had training. And I think the author of John also had priestly training as well. So this is we need to understand it, as I tell people today, read scholarly commentaries, read what the experts say about these passages. I mean, you could just read Genesis 3, for example, and you'll be like, oh, it's, it's a literal talking snake, as a lot of atheists say. <laughs> Not really, though. Uh, for example, uh, in the ancient Near East, they would talk about seraph, the seraphim that surrounded God's throne. But any ancient East, Near Eastern depiction of a seraph is of a winged serpent. So... Scholars like Michael Heiser have argued that it is, what's happening in Genesis 3 is not a literal talking snake. This is a rebellious seraph uh, that is actually uh, acting out on his own. This is the rebellion of Satan in a lot of ways. It's And so if you go to the ISV translation, it doesn't translate it as serpent. It actually translated as the shining one, because uh, that was another way you could translate Nahash, depending on where you put the vowel points. So it's hard to say sometimes, which is literal metaphorical. This is why we need to study the scholarship around this issue to best understand what the biblical authors were trying to say. Like to what extent do you think it's, it's important to, to go back to like, say the, the, the ancient Aramaic versions and like really study like the exact words that they use. Like, uh, is that something that you consider to be like important or is it just the overall message of the stories that are being presented to us? Well, yes and no. I think the English translations capture the message very well. I mean, you can understand the idea of creation, fall, uh, Israel, salvation, atonement, yeah. pretty quite easy. The message you can clearly get through. But if you want to go deeper, you know, sometimes you have to do that. Uh, so for example, there's this, um, there's a passage in Revelation that a lot of Christians use about where Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold, therefore I will spit you out of my mouth. And I remember hearing in church, Jesus, is, the, the pastor would say, this is Jesus saying that he doesn't like lukewarm Christians. He'd rather you be pure evil than be a lukewarm Christian. But that's not what Jesus was really saying. He's saying that you're not useful. You know, hot water is useful. Uh, it can be so soothing. Cold water is refreshing. It can be useful, but lukewarm water is neither. It's not useful in any way. Mm -hmm. So he's not telling the church, you know, I'd rather you be a lukewarm. I'd rather you be evil than a lukewarm Christian. He's saying you're not even useful in any way. So you can understand Jesus was mad at the church there. But if you want to go deep and understand really what was going, you got to study the original wording. You got to study, study what scholars say, the cultural context. It helps us better to understand the message in a much deeper way. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Do you think that like just on that point, do you think people who are like on the fence or or maybe like sort of half believe are I don't know, I don't know if I'd use the word useful. Maybe 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 that's the is the right word, but like less worthless maybe in the world um than than someone who's taken like a like a a hard hardened position. Like do you think it's wrong well, to be sort of I don't know wishy-washy about the whole thing? 
Well, Paul says, first of all, God shows no favoritism. So that, that's to be clear. Also, um, what do we mean by wishy-washy? I mean, there are some things I'm still undecided on, like the nature of hell. Is it annihilationism or, you know, um, you know, something else entirely? I'm not, I'm kind of wishy-washy on that. Uh, there's certain topics I'm wishy-washy on. Um, I think more for core doctrines, I think Jesus would obviously prefer we believe in him as Lord. Uh, but I mean, I don't think that is, that necessarily condemns you to hell. Like there was a Christian who's like, I do believe in Jesus, but I'm not so sure about everything. That's not, it's not. Con that doesn't condemn you to hell because you're saved by grace through faith, as Ephesians 2 says. So you don't have to worry so much about this idea that, you know, your knowledge, you know, having certain like Gnostic ideas is what's going to save you. Uh, but I mean, I do think, yes, we need to believe in Christ and accept them as Lord. Uh, but I mean, it really depends what we mean by wishy-washy, I guess. Hmm. I guess undecided is the the thing i'm coming to which i mean kind of brings us to to the the second thing i wanted to ask about and this is this is this is one of the the, the points that maybe not makes or breaks it but it kind mm -hmm. of maybe set up a notice right because mm -hmm. i was having i was having this this discussion with with my friend about about the crucifixion and he uh, he he was just like well you know there's they don't really have like that many good arguments against it having happened and i was just like what do you mean like surely someone has something and then he was like no. well it's yeah yeah right okay like this, yeah, this is what he said to me he was just like no so i think i think it's um the arguments against it and you you can you can correct me if i'm wrong here are um either they found the wrong they were looking at the wrong cave um <laughs> or he wasn't really dead or the roman soldiers and all the people who got tortured to death are lying and that seems to be the sum of the three arguments or the main arguments that I've seen against it. And it seems, sorry, were you going to say something? No, no, continue your thought and I'll respond. Yeah, it seems like that's not a lot of evidence against it. And and it really makes me like question like people's skepticism of Christianity. Like, do, do you think that people are aware that these are the only arguments against the, the resurrection having been real? Well, I mean, there are other nuanced arguments. I, I can't think of any off the top of my head right now, but I've heard scholars make more sophisticated ones. Let's be fair about that. Okay. Uh, so let's talk about the first one. Did they find the wrong cave? This, first of all, there's no, no one denies that Jesus was crucified uh, and actually died. I mean, early sources like you know, even secular sources like Lucian and Josephus and uh, uh, Tacitus say that he died. So and the only way they ever talk about him dying is crucifixion in, in the early sources. Uh, so the idea that they, they may have found um, the wrong cave. Um, well, he wasn't buried in the cave, it'd be tomb. And the Gospels record this would have been public information. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. So they would have known where this was because, you know, they... Um, uh, it's recorded. You know, this is this is a rich man's tomb. He would have known it. They would be able to uh, uh, go there and you know, see it. And so, you know, th this is very unlikely that they would not have been able to know where it was. And you know, the Jewish authorities would have known where it was, especially if Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. I mean, they would have been able to be like, hey, these Christians are running around claiming Jesus is, 
is resurrected and his body is no longer in the tomb. But we, we, the Sanhedrin, he was buried in one of our tombs. Let's just go get it out and show them kind of thing. Or, you know, let's go get his bone box and show them. So there's that. Some will say that maybe Jesus wasn't buried in, in a tomb, that this is just a later Christian invention. But it, there's no reason for the Christians to invent this. It doesn't really help their case. There's no ancient prophecy that said the Messiah had to be buried in a tomb. It just said that, you know, he made his grave with like Richmond. But you could interpret that in different ways. Maybe he was, you know, when that rich man buried him or he was buried in a rich man's field or, you know, the rich, when they finally took his body off the cross, the centurion could have been rich. I mean, there's many ways you can interpret. There's no way for them. There's no reason for them to actually invent the tomb story. So there's that kind of issue. Uh, the idea that Jesus didn't even die is not even entertained by scholars today. Uh, John records things that he would not have had knowledge of, like when they uh, pierced his side, water and blood came out. This is a medical condition that sort of happens that modern medical experts have commented on and said, yeah, there's no way that, you know, an ancient person would have known this unless it was literally happening, uh, because this is an actual condition that can happen when a body dies. So Jesus died. Uh, I know of no scholar that would argue that the Romans were not good at crucifying people. He would have been dead. <laughs> no, they had a bit of practice uh, at that, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the most what I see is they try to argue is that Jesus wasn't buried, like it was a later Christian invention. And that just goes against literally all the data we have from the ancient world. Roman and Jewish sources mentioned that at times crucified victims could be buried. Josephus mentions crucified victims were buried in Judea before the Jewish war. Philo gives an, uh, says that in Egypt uh, on the emperor's birthday, they allowed crucified victims to be buried. We have found a burial box in Judea of a guy named Johanan who was crucified and allowed a proper burial. Recently, there was a guy in um, uh, England who was discovered who was crucified and allowed a proper burial. They didn't always just leave bodies to rot on crosses. Often they were allowed to be buried. Uh, so Jewish sources expressed the importance of burying bodies. Uh, and so they would have fought with this with the Romans and said, no, we need to take them off the cross. We don't want them on there for, like, example, the Sabbath or during Passover because it would have been sacrilegious to them. There's no reason for the Gospels to invent it. Uh, there, there's no competing early traditions about what happened to the body of Jesus. Everyone agrees he was buried. So the, then becomes the question, if, if he was buried, as the overwhelming evidence supports, and if you want to see more, I have a video on my channel called uh, like all the it's it's supposed the biblical error number 15 evidence jesus was buried uh and so that's on my channel if anyone wants to type that into youtube you can search it and find it i'll put it in the uh, description but, for people yeah so you just go i'll send you the link and it can be there uh so so if jesus was buried we then have to ask the question is what happened to the body uh because no one was able to produce it at this point and still wasn't i mean even uh Justin Martyr is writing a dialogue with the, uh, the Jewish uh, authority in the second century, his, his, his dialogue with Trifo. And he mentions at one point, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, you're still saying that the disciples stole the body. So we implicitly, the Jews are kind of acknowledging even a century later that the body went missing. Uh, what happened to it? Uh, it? We know that the uh, early church are proclaiming the gospel quite early in Judea, in Jerusalem, where the authorities would have had the means and the motive to debunk it. So why didn't they just produce the body and it would have been the end of Christianity right then and there? Uh, and even very liberal scholars like Paula Fredrickson will say, you know, they must have, the disciples must have seen something because there's no reason for early Christianity to come out of this Jewish background where they did not expect a Messiah to die and rise. They expected a conquering Messiah. The Messiah died, that Messianic movement died with it. But the resurrection like reinvigorated Christianity in a way that it never had with any other movement. Uh, so that's a weird phenomenon. 
So you have this early, and and the disciples say the reason is because they saw the resurrected body. Even skeptics converted. James, the brother of Jesus, was not a follower of Jesus during his lifetime, but became a leader in the early church after. First Corinthians said that it's because Jesus appeared to James. Paul was a skeptic and a persecutor, became a Christian because he believed he saw the resurrected Jesus. There's just a lot of weird things around the beginning of early Christianity that are hard to explain on naturalistic hypotheses. Uh, They end up, in my view, constantly becoming ad hoc, multiplying explanations, multiplying assumptions beyond necessity. And the reason seems to be is is because, well, we need to begin with naturalism. Miracles are the least probable. So we got to come up with some sort of naturalist explanation. That seems to be, in my view, sort of assuming naturalism in a lot of ways. If we start with just agnosticism and go, what is the simpler explanation? What is more plausible? What is explanatory scope and power? The resurrection is always going to win. It's always going to be the simplest explanation if we don't presuppose miracles are the least probable and can and a naturalist explanation is always going to be more probable. Mm. Yeah, see, the thing for me is the soldiers that never changed their story. Uh, like the, the ones who were stationed outside the tomb, for people who don't know what I'm talking about. That, that just, mm-hmm. that, that I'm still, like, not reeling, <laughs> but, like, I, I'm still processing that piece of information because if I was being tortured to death, I, like, I can't say that I wouldn't just say anything <laughs> to get them to stop. Like, I, just whatever you want to hear, I will say it. Like, 12 hours in, like, I am, like I will tell you anything you want. And it, it, blows, it blows my mind that that, that that happened. Like, just, and, and then, then you get to that, um, is, it, is it Spock quote? Um, biblical scholar also. Um, that, <laughs> that's like, whoa, once you've eliminated the possible... Whatever, whatever left, however improbable, um, is mm. like the the yeah the logical answer. Definitely butchered that quote, mm. but the, the the principle remains. And then I'm just sat there like, okay, so is is that the answer? Like, is 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 it that simple? And uh, well, I mean, even Anthony Flew said there's more evidence for the resurrection than any other miracle claim. Uh, it just seems like you got to explain how Christianity would come out of the Jewish background. And it's extremely hard to do with just only naturalistic explanations. The Jews, again, they were not predicting a Messiah that was going to die and rise. All other early Messianic movements just died just died off when the Messiah, their Messiah figure, died. And that's what you would expect. No one said that, oh, yes, this he's actually resurrected and this proves he's the Messiah. Only the Christians said this only about Jesus. And notice, this was just not the way their way of explaining death, because they didn't say John the Baptist resurrected. They didn't say Stephen, the first martyr, resurrected. They only said this about Jesus, which is weird in that culture for to start. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, actually, that reminds me, there was there was something that um someone had mentioned to me about the crucifixion, um, about the dispute over uh Jesus's final words. Um, I believe um, they are uh, one. One version says that his final words were, "My God, why have you forsaken me?" Um, another it has it saying, um, "Is finished or it's done." Um, and I wondered, had you ever heard uh, the theory that this is a reference to Psalm twenty-two, um, because that those are the opening and closing 
uh, phrases of the psalm is do you give credence to that idea have you even have you heard that before yeah when jesus is saying my god my god why for why is thou forsaken me he's sort of referring to that psalm is what a lot of scholars will say yeah and we also have to acknowledge when jesus is on the cross none of the gospel authors say they're recording his last words they just say these are you know he said this thing on the cross i mean so also i believe dan wallace has argued that john might be doing a little bit of um dynamic equivalence in his words like me saying i thirst he's basically saying that trying to get the gist of what jesus was saying when in saying my god my god why hast thou forsaken me so dan wallace says that this might just be more of john just giving his own like understanding of what jesus was trying to utter when he said like for example i thirst but none of them said these were the last things jesus said on the cross they all sort of agree that he said things on the cross he was on there for a couple hours so he probably was in agony probably did talk to the people beneath the cross at one point, probably talked to the thieves at one point on the cross. I mean, there's plenty of time for him to set all this stuff. So we can't assume that just the gospels record that that means those were his last words for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we've learned anything from the life of Brian is there's a lot of chat when people are on the crucifix. Uh, <laughs> yes. That's so historical. Yeah. yeah well, that's a clearly accurate representation of what was happening. Um, <laughs> Could you steel man the case that Jesus was just a prophet or just a, a mortal man? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is that um, a lot of scholars is that Jesus was this apocalyptic prophet. He thought the end of the world was going to happen in his time. And he was sort of trying to force the hand of God. Uh, so he thought he was the Messiah. He thought he was going to be the eschatological agent to usher in the kingdom of God. Uh, and of course, so he would be, so he was misinterpreted as being understood to be a king. Uh, the Ro the Sanhedrin, of course, didn't like this because they would be stealing followers away from him. The Romans didn't like this at all because, you know, they went after, you know, would be kings because, you know, only one king but Caesar to them. And so they crucified him. Uh, and so then after the, the, the disciples were so distraught, uh, they didn't know what to do, but they didn't want to end the Jesus movement. So they had this sort of idea where they're going to just say, well, actually, he was physically resurrected. His tomb was empty. And now he's been taken up to heaven to reign as king above there. But he'll return someday, you know, kind of thing. Uh, so that would be the steel man position as best I can. Mm -hmm. Maybe I didn't steel man as best as I could. I apologize if anyone's listening, but that would be the way I best understood what the skeptic is arguing. Mm -hmm. See, the problem for me just becomes, it's like, that just seems not less plausible, but less rational given the evidence presented. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. I'm just like, yeah, I'm yeah. still wrapping my head I, around the whole thing. I agree with you entirely. Uh, you know, it's, it's for the, the again, it, in early Jewish movements that were, that had messiahs, they, none of them were looking for this guy that was supposed to die for the sins of humanity, including those unclean Gentiles. Uh, they were looking for this guy who was going to defeat Rome and establish their kingdom. Like, they were going to be the ones reigning over the Gentiles. So anytime the Messiah died, you got yourself a new Messiah. For the Christians, they had a, a likely candidate, James, the brother of the Lord. But he never claimed to be the Messiah. He went to his death, you know, be a follower of Christ. So we got the, this issue, like, why did the Christians do this outlandish thing of claiming that their Messiah figure died, which was the plan of God, and then he resurrected, and that proved he was the Messiah and also God? And they were willing to do this in Jerusalem, where the the, the authorities had the means and the motives to debunk them if the Christians were wrong, hmm. and they didn't. Instead, they persecuted them, but they could have quite easily just, you know, 
got some Gentiles to get the body out and say, no, look, here he is. And also, here's another thing people tend to overlook. Jesus died on Passover. Here's the problem with that. The Passover, Jerusalem had pilgrims flooded in. People would have been everywhere. We tended to depict Jesus praying in the Garden of, of Gethsemane by himself alone. That probably wasn't like he was probably <laughs> shoulder to shoulder with so many people there uh, that this is why Judas had to point him out when the guards came because there were so many people there. Uh, so this the place of credit. So you think the disciples or someone's going to be able to steal the body during this when the, the, the city is flooded with uh, Passover pilgrims out and about? Uh, constantly, night and day. I mean, it'd been very. It'd be like trying to rob a grave in the middle of like you know. If there was one in like central New York. So <laughs> someone's gonna see something. Yeah, yeah. And you'd think the people with the most to gain would find some way to just try and to. Like, I, I'm stunned they didn't try and just get a body and be like, no, 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 this is him. <laughs> no, no, it's just it's just a bit. You know, the body is just a bit old, but it's definitely him. Well, I mean, they that would have been a. Uh, that would have been an issue because Joseph of Arimathea would have would have stood against that. He would have been like, "That didn't come from my tomb. Uh, we know it's my tomb, and you just can't, you know, go in there." Uh, I mean, pe- they would have known, for example, uh, you know, that this was not the body of Jesus, for example, because they knew where the body was. Uh, they could have gone to the tomb and checked it, and we have no evidence that that ever that 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 they were able to even do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to what extent do you consider the Bible to be like the the literal words of God? Like, do do you consider it to be like the the, the people who wrote each each book were like channeling the spirit of of God, <laughs> or like not? Like, I mean, no. I, or do you? Is it so, like a description of their understanding of faith? So I would say it's sort of God tugging on the heart, perhaps you know, not so much like them channeling God. Uh, it's God, you know, preserving as best as he can through fallible people to give the message. For me, the message is most important. Uh, it doesn't need to be like the exact wording, for example. Like you can find contradictions between, you know, first and second Samuel and first Chronicles. So what? I mean, the, the contradictions are like, you know, how many men went to battle or how long was this plague? That kind of thing. Like, not a big deal to me. How long did this king reign, for example? Uh, so the way I sort of do it is this analogy, like, okay, God called Moses to lead the children of, of Israel out of Egypt. Did he do it perfectly? No, he sinned. Uh, so God works for fallible people, but he still got the job done. That's the way I look at scripture. He worked for fallible people, fallible scribes as well. It would trans, that would make copies. And sometimes uh, errors would creep in, but nothing that would really affect the message or core doctrines in my view. Yeah. So like, at what point do you think that the description of events, especially like in Genesis, Exodus, become like an actual description of, of like historical events? And like what point? Because I find it difficult to believe that there was a literal Garden of Eden. There could be like, could have been like a really idyllic parad- paradise paradise, like somewhere in, I don't know, like Africa, Mesopotamia, somewhere like that. Mm-hmm. Um well, we, we have found, I'm pretty sure, the region of Eden. There was a paper published by Jeffrey Rose about a decade ago, and he left, left out references to calling it Eden, but in later interviews, he regretted that because he said, I, I, it is Eden. Uh, and so what we know is at the bottom of the Persian Gulf, it used to be a dry land, uh, and that before it was flooded in, hint, hint. Uh, and so it was this dry land. It was basically 
very good climate controlled. Uh, it had a lot of subterranean aquifers that would water the area, mm. even though it had little rainfall. So sounds a lot like the description of Eden. We know four rivers flowed into that region. Two have dried up, but two are still there, the Tigris and Euphrates. So I think there was a literal Eden there. That was the region of Eden. And in Eden, there was a garden where God would meet with humans. It's, it's considered to be the first temple. If you understand the way the Jews talked about the tabernacle and the temple, it's very similar to how Eden is described. It's like priestly place that humans would meet with God. Uh, and commune with him. This is the same with the tabernacle. Like even the menorah in the tabernacle was designed to be like a tree with like uh, different branches coming out of it. Uh, a lot of similarities occur between the description of Eden and how the priests did their priestly duties in the tabernacle and temple. Yeah. Like, so when, when we're talking about the story of Adam and Eve, then like, do you, do you think that that is the, <laughs> Alexa apparently going off. <laughs> it's not gonna shut up. Okay, I don't like those things. My mom has it. I don't. I don't. I don't like it. <laughs> um, the where was I? All right. So Adam and Eve. Like, do you do you consider that that story to be some sort of description of like God giving consciousness or sentience? Um, of, no. of, in, in a sense to to like a single early pair of early humans like right so what is what does it like mean for you so it's it's as i was sort of talking about it's the first time god made a covenant with humans it's the first priestly covenant sort of set up this is the first time god has sort of met made a meet up a, a sacred space the garden this is where humans are going to meet with him so he makes sort of this first covenant and i can argue that from genesis 1 so notice in genesis 1 it talks about humanity in general terms, like, you know, humanity shall be the image of God. He shall subdue the earth and rule over creation. Then in Genesis 2-4, we see something called a Toledoth formula. It's, it's these are the generations of. Mm -hmm. It shows up in Genesis about 11 times, I believe. Anytime that Toledoth formula shows up, it always introduces what comes after the person that's mentioned. So it's almost like a chapter marker in a lot of ways. So that means Adam and Eve come after humanity has been given the image of God. So humanity generally is given the image of God. Then chapter two, God hones it on a specific region, this land of Eden, Persian Gulf, creates a sacred space there, the garden, and then he elects two humans to be the first priest and priestess of creation. Then they fall in their exile, of course. Uh, but generally that's what it is. Humanity is sort of elected to be the image of God, all humanity, wherever they are. Then he hones it on a sacred space. So this is not about the creation of the first man, in my view. Mm -hmm. This is about God setting up covenant with the first priest. And this is why we see in the New Testament, Adam is the priest who failed compared with Christ, the priest who succeeded. Okay. So then when beyond that, then when, when we're talking about like there's the flood, I think definitely there's like an outrageous amount of historical evidence that there was a big monstrous uh, rise in sea levels. Um floods etc so that i don't have any issue with historically and then you sort of go back like further and they talk about like that there were giants in this time and no we're not, no it doesn't yeah. say it. no this is actually a, a thing of mine that bothers me that christians do the bible never says giants existed okay 
Never once. This is a misunderstanding of a lot of passages. Okay. So in Genesis 6, it says the Nephilim were in the land. We don't know what Nephilim really means. It, it might like likely to de- derive from the word like Nephal to fall. Okay. So it could be calling them the fallen ones. It never actually says they're giants. The reason why we get that is because in Numbers 13, uh, the spies of Israel go into the land of Canaan. They come out and the, the corrupt spies say, we saw the Nephilim and we were like grasshoppers before them. So then we go, oh, Nephilim must refer to these giant type creatures. Problem is, is they're probably doing hyperbole. And the book of Numbers, chapter 13, directly tells us what they gave is a bad report. It's not a trustworthy report. So that actually comes from a report that we're not even supposed to trust. Uh, Even in Deuteronomy, when they do a survey of the land of Canaan, they don't mention Nephilim because they weren't there. This is the, 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 the 10 corrupt spies lie. The only other two places that might mention giants are, it says Og, who is king um, and east of the Jordan River, I forget the exact name of his kingdom, uh, but it says he had a bed that was like 13 feet. But that doesn't mean that he literally was 13 feet. Any more reason than having a California king-sized bed today doesn't mean you're morbidly obese. It just shows your wealth. So Og having a big bed doesn't mean he was literally had to be 13 feet. Uh, the only place, of course, Goliath. And if you read in the Masoretic text, it says he was nine and a half feet. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the Septuagint, it says he was six and a half feet. So that's not inhumane. Mm. I mean, it's not inhuman. No. He could very well have just been a very tall human. So there's no sort of like these angelic hybrid like creatures that are not human in the Bible that are giants. That's something we get from later commentaries trying to read that back onto the biblical text. Okay. So then something I know is definitely in there is the description of people who are incredibly old, like hundreds and hundreds of years old. How real do you think that is? Like, so then, okay, so what does that mean? Like, right. So then when they're describing this and they're like, oh, was it like, they're like 800 years old or (laughs) 600 years old. What, what do you like interpret that to mean? Well, there's a lot of things to say about that. Uh, for anyone who's interested, I did a video as part of my Genesis 1 to 11 series. So I did a series on Genesis 1 to 11, and I did one or two videos on every chapter. So I just go through Genesis 1, 2, 3, and then I do, do, did one entirely on Genesis 5. And basically the whole video is about discussing the cultural context of these long ages. So one thing we need to know is that in ancient cultures, they often sort of did this kind of thing. They would uh, give themselves high ages. We see this in the Sumerian king list to show honor. Sargon II, for example, of Assyria said, I built the circumference of the city wall, 16,283 cubits, the number of my name. So there's a specific number, 16,283, assigned to his name. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are sort of given these ideal numbers. Uh, Abraham's 175, Isaac is uh, 180, Jacob is 147. And then after Jacob has his name changed to Israel, the rest of his life is 64 years. But as I I show this in my video, it's hard for me to explain here, but those are actually mathematical formulas that add up uh, to get specific each age gets a formula that equates to 17 on purpose. They're doing this on purpose to show symbolic perfection and to give praise to the ancestors. Specifically with um, the ages of Genesis 5, uh, scholars have noted that these are weird numbers. Uh, They don't end like they're supposed to. Uh, So they all end in like, uh, like a five, a two, a zero, or like a seven, I think at like one point. Uh, and so, yeah, it's zero, two, five, seven, or nine. 
Ken, Kenton Sparks notes the possibility of that occurring for this number of people mm. would have been 0.00000006% possible. So these are not literal ages. Uh, and if we compare this, so Lloyd Bailey actually did a comparison. He compared these ages with the reigns of kings of Judah and Israel that we see later in Chronicles and the books of Kings. Uh, we don't see the same thing. In Chronicles, uh, we see that every king had a reign that ended in one of the numbers of one through one through uh, zero through nine. So, but in Genesis five, you o- it only either ends in a two, five, seven, or nine. This is a clue telling us these are symbolic ages. They're giving them praise to the ancestors to calculate the, to give like these symbolic numbers. Mm-hmm. And the main thing I think what is going on here is if you take start with Adam, you take his age, you yeah. take Seth age, Enosh age, Cain age. You do that all the way to Moses. You actually get a symbolic number. Uh, it's, I believe it's, um, I talk about it in the video, but I believe it is uh, like 16th, it's uh, 1,000, sorry, it's like 12,600. Okay. Uh, and that's important because you see uh, another version of that in Revelation. You see 1,260 uh, used in Revelation as a symbolic number. So that was an important number for the Jews to get to that exact um, amount just multiplied by a 10 sometimes. So these are symbolic numbers. They're not meant to be taken literal. Okay. So what do the numbers symbolize? Depends. See, sometimes we're not entirely sure because a lot of the cultural context is lost to us. There are some things that we just, you know, sort of have lost uh, from the ancient world. One thing I think it symbolizes is, uh, again, it's getting that uh, symbolic number between Adam and Moses. And, you know, as you go further back, you know, you're more likely to have longer ages. And the longer the age, the more praise you may want to give to the ancestor. Uh, and so, and it sort of sort of counts down. And the, the older, of course, you want to give more praise as well at times because, you know, that goes even further back. You know, that's a really great ancestor. You may decrease some perhaps maybe for like uh, Jared, for example, because maybe, you know, from other texts, he wasn't as good as maybe perhaps Methuselah who came later. Uh, but, you know, you're generally trying to make these ideal formulas that you want to use to sort of teach the symbolic uh, message. And I go into this in a lot of detail in my video on Genesis 5. Okay. I'm definitely going to check that out. I'll put those videos in the description below as well for people who who are listening. Mm -hmm. Um, So what it sounds like you're saying is there's a secret code hidden in the Bible. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Kind of, but I mean, it's not like what people, it's not like a prediction of the future. It's just something that would have meant to the ancient authors that would have been interesting. So you don't buy any of the the Bible code stuff? No, God, no, no. <laughs> uh, I was watching a video about it, and it was one of those videos that like they do a great job in like laying out the most crazy story, and then at the end, then they'll debunk most of it. And I was watching it with my flatmate, being like, "What? Mm-hmm. No, no, no! Fuck you! Yeah. This isn't real! This isn't real! There's absolutely no way!" And then like it got 15 minutes in, and I was like, "Oh, thank fuck! Okay, yeah, yeah! It's just <laughs> it's just maths and 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 wordplay. It's not it's not actually yeah. happening." Uh, yeah, I mean, here's here's one age that I can I remember is that Joseph is assigned the age of 110. Joseph was the Egyptian vizier. Mm-hmm. That was the in Egyptian um, culture. I, I I 110 was considered to be the ideal age to live to. So they're basically just saying that Joseph was the ideal Egyptian. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, 110. I can see 110. That's definitely mm-hmm. possible. There's people who live yeah. to 110 these days. What's the oldest person ever? Like 116, I think. <laughs> Something like that. So I could see well, not that. 175 like Abraham was, I mean. Yeah. But here's another interesting thing that people kind of overlook. Genesis 17, 17 says this. 
is that God comes to Abraham and says, you're going to have a, a child in your old age. Abraham laughs and says, shall a man who is a hundred have a child? Well, wait a minute, Abraham, you know, from your ancestors, that was perfectly normal. Even if, you, mm-hmm. if the ages are literal, Terah would have had him at like age 135. Yeah. So but Abraham is sort of basically saying this doesn't happen in old age. This is more evidence these ages are symbolic. Okay. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, actually. Um, for reference, the oldest person ever was 122, apparently. Mm. Um, or that's what Wikipedia says. That's uh, my, my time to beat. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I always used to say I want to go for the 100 not out and then I'll surrender. <laughs> <laughs> nice round number to finish on, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so the the next thing I want to talk to you about was um, the idea of of violence um, in religion and and in Christianity. So, uh, a lot of people point to this idea that you know we shouldn't take the Bible seriously or we shouldn't listen to the the lessons in it because there are there's a lot of of violence, especially in the early books of the Bible, there's there's a lot of like death and killing, and I, oh, I can't remember what the exact what the the story was, or what the 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 chapter was. But there's there's a, a point where like God's like, well, you know, let go stamp out this. Uh, and mm-hmm. They're sacrificing children or something like that, and they're like, well, yeah. you know, look, this this religion is is just as violent as as any of the others. Um, like, why why should we listen to something that condones violence like that? Okay. Well, two things. First of all, a lot of that in the book of Joshua, I would say, is ancient Near Eastern hyperbole. We see this also in like the, the annals of Moses III or Assyrian annals, this idea of like utter annihilation, wipe them all out. It's just ancient Near Eastern hyperbole. They're not actually going to go in and do that. And scholars like Kenneth Kitchen have written extensively on this and shown that that's, that's not what's going on in Joshua. This is not genocide. This is ancient Near Eastern hyperbole. With regards to religious violence, we need to remember a couple of things. First of all, the, that was not commanded for Christians. Christians were told to fulfill the Great Commission. You're not told to go out and subdue the earth with violence. That's not what Christianity is about. And we have little evidence that Christians would have read Joshua as if it was a command for them to go out and do these kinds of things. Uh, and studies seem to confirm this. Like as I, I did a video on does Christianity cause war and violence? And I cited studies that show that it's actually the opposite, like the influence of religion on interstate armed conflict, looked at Christianity, Islam, and Buddhism, found that Buddhism was non-significant, basically. It did not correlate with more violence or less violence. Islam correlated with an increase in interstate armed conflict. Christianity correlated with a decrease in interstate armed conflict. So right then and there, we have good evidence that Christianity actually decreases war, decreases violence. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, again, there people want, might cite historical wars, uh, like, you know, uh, stuff that happened in Europe. But I mean, a guy named William Cavanaugh wrote a book called The Myth of Religious Violence and pointed out that a lot of those wars in Europe were not caused by religion. They were caused by political issues of the time, uh, economic issues of the time. A uh, lot of like, you know, a lot of the wars were actually being fought between the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah. And then France joined against the Holy Roman Empire, even though it was Catholic. And some of the early Roman Emperor's best soldiers were Lutherans. So it's like, this was not, <laughs> this was not based on religion. This was based on political issues of the time. And Christianity was actually, if anything, helping to decrease that amount of violence. I mean, one one of the, the arguments I've heard, like, in opposition to this idea is, like, why would people shed so much blood over their holy land? 
like like all the the crusades the wars that went uh went on um mm-hmm. to yeah capture recapture fight over over jerusalem and 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 the area surrounding it well the one thing we need to remember is that christianity never says anywhere in the bible you need to maintain control over you know israel or judea or the holy land i mean it never ever teaches that i would argue that that crusade mentality came out of more of like a nationalistic mentality which would be the perversion of christianity uh i did a video called does christianity cause christian nationalism and i studied research that shows that what actually happens is is that when people start to secularize they take christian symbols and they reinterpret them in secular ways and start seeing themselves more as like a national territory and that nationalism does lead to more uh violence uh, that's just is historically based but it comes about when people move away from religiosity so i would argue uh, uh as an inference that that's probably more likely to explain what happened with things like the crusades it wasn't this idea that christianity was directly motivating them they started to see themselves more as a term of this christendom civilization that needs to be defended from outside attacks mm. and then it's based on land not based on winning souls and that's a perversion of what christianity is for sure mm. So you'd basically argue that like all of the wars done in the name of religion were really like just human struggles and that was an excuse for it that, you know, we will fight over anything. I'd be very cautious to say a war was directly caused by religion, especially Christianity. That that That's hard to really prove and say when you get into the literature. Uh, but again, my, my, my inference would be is that this comes away from... It, it results when people start moving away from what Christianity actually teaches and more towards reinterpreting Christian symbols in nationalistic or civilizationalistic ways. Mm. What would you say to the argument that the in that the modern world sort of maybe say let's say post nineteen eighty or maybe post nineteen fifty? Yeah, is the most prolonged sustained period of of peace that we have less war and less violence than we've ever had and yet we're the least religious <laughs> well let's remember one thing correlation causation i mean the research shows that christianity has contributed to decreasing the violence that's just what the literature helps us to understand in, uh, it's sorry, not in what sense do you mean like in the in the sense that like the judeo-christian values that have founded the the western world have let who like that sort of provided liberalism and all the stuff that comes along with you know globalization and all mm-hmm. of that has has like fostered the society that has less violence and less war yeah well there's research like robert woodbury has put out has shown that christianity did specifically christian missionary activity so that's directly tied to christianity in more ways this actually helped foster liberalism helped foster democratic values spreading civil liberties mass education mass printing so he's got um a great paper let me see if i can get the title of it here right uh for you right now uh it's called like the uh the protestant roots of liberal democracy i believe is the title Mm -hmm. and he just sort of shows that like a lot of this stuff and he doesn't just argue for this. He actually ran a, a model to demonstrate this. So he actually ran a sociological model. The title is The Missionary Roots of Liberal Democracy. And he says Protestants heavily influenced the rise and spread of stable democracy around the world. Uh, this paper argues that uh, conversionary Protestants were a crucial catalyst initiating the development and spread of religious liberties, mass education, mass printing, newspapers, voluntary organizations, and colonial reforms, thereby creating the conditions that made stable democracy more likely. And he's not alone. Other scholars like Ronald to Salem have also found similar results. Mm. That's interesting. I talked a little bit about this with, with James Lindsay, but that was like 
two years ago, I think almost now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, I mean, let's also talk about some of the fact that you know a lot of violence has decreased lately. I mean, the main cause of that is going to be the fact that we have nuclear weapons now. Nobody wants to risk war because we no one wants to be annihilated. I mean, that that, that doesn't come from the main cause is not from secularism or Christianity, in my view. It comes from the fact that we now have mutually assured destruction. So everyone is like, let's just talk now so we don't accidentally kill each other, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it. Well, I'm very thankful for this phenomenon. It seems to be saving us at the minute. <laughs> it, it's ironic that the nuclear weapons, the thing that should have destroyed us, are actually kind of what's saving us because both sides have them, and no one wants to set them off because we know what will happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's Mexican standoff, isn't it? It's like yeah, to the to the most extreme case. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you think? Do you think society has lost something? in in losing like a, a losing yeah religion as a, a central part of yeah uh, maybe our week or our, our society just like the culture that, that that we inhabit like do you think we've lost something well only time will tell because we're seeing christianity decline in the west right now which i think is unfortunate because i think it's the foundation of western civilization and we're seeing some things that are not looking too good about that so there was a study done on 53 countries I cited it in my video as Christianity harmful. And what they found is that nations that are more Christian or more religious, uh, the people in those nations uh, tend to donate more time to charity. In secular nations, Christians still donate to charity, but secular individuals do not donate as much or spend more time volunteering. So as nations secularize, there's less funding and time given to charities. The other issue is nationalism. Uh, We know that when individuals on the right uh, move away from religiosity, specifically Christian religiosity, they don't get rid of the Christian symbols. They reinterpret them in nationalistic ways, which is scary uh, because that's kind of similar to what the Nazis did in ways. They took Mm. Christian symbols and reinterpreted them in this secular religious ideas. Uh, They weren't Christian in the traditional sense by any stretch of the imagination. (laughs) They just took Christian symbols and reinterpreted them Mm. into their secular ideology. So that's scary as well. We also know studies have shown that uh, care for the environment decreases as religiosity decreases, uh, especially in the West. Yes, studies, I cited this in my video, is Christianity harmful? It's a 53-minute video of me just citing study after study, showing all the benefits we get from Christianity. But yeah, studies have shown in the U.S. and on a global scale that uh, as religiosity declines, care for the environment even goes down. And that's also kind of scary as well. So I would say secularism in terms of, you know, the West has been Christian up until very, very recently. So people are saying, you see, Denmark is fine. They're very secular. You see, the Netherlands, they're fine. They're very secular. Give it time. Let's see what happens when people are raised with grandparents that were atheists. And let's see what society they're producing. Mm. Uh, You know, there are some interesting signs already coming out from the data. Even a a sociologist named Kenneth Vaughn has argued that care for immigrants does can decrease in certain ways uh, as religiosity decreases. So it's, you know, I I cite all this in my video is Christianity harmful. Mm, Well, I'll put that in the description for people as well. If you're you're, uh, (laughs) curious to check it out. Uh, that's that's fascinating. I cannot wait to check that out and then uh, whip it out in a, a discussion with a very um, with some sort of left wing, very pro environmental, um, yeah, but definitely atheist person. I cannot wait to whip that out and watch them lose their mind. Uh, 
I mean, and the studies are robust. They're, the studies on environmentalism and religiosity are quite robust. I mean, I guess it makes sense. And it's just like, you know, what is it? We're meant to be the, what, the stewards of the earth? Is that the phrase? Um, that's, or, the, that's the Christian idea, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so so theoretically, if people were actually following what it says, then yeah, I would I I would buy that. I I wouldn't say that's that's out of the realms of possibility at all. Um, mm -hmm. I will go check your study um, before I can whip it out on someone. But uh, yeah, um, definitely sounds like it, it would make sense. You you mentioned there that there's a decline of Christianity in the West, and and I think you're definitely right. But there is there's there's something going on where I'm witnessing what seems to me to be a resurgence in in a sense, or it's it's almost like there's like a sector, and it is mostly on the right, um, but the, I don't think it's exclusively right-wing, that of mm -hmm. people who are... It's it's almost like it's it's cool again, in a sense. Like, and this is, I think, <laughs> been... Yeah, but, like, I, 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 this is just my, like, sense of it. Like, uh, obviously, I'm looking at, like, the small portion of things that I am personally able to consume, you know, like... But I think it's being led by people like... By people like Stephen Crowder, actually... Um, where it's like it's like worn like a badge of honor and pride, and I think it's almost making it like cool for people again. Like, do, do, am, am I looking at the wrong things, or do you get this sense that there might be at least like a faction in who are becoming more enamored becomes, with this idea again? You got to think about it like this: is like people think counterculture is cool. Well, in the '90s, you know, it was like rebellion, secularism, but now that's sort of taken over. So, what's counterculture? Christianity. Like traditionalism, and I, I see a lot of young Christians wanting to become Catholic, Orthodox, Lutheran, trying to get you know back into traditional Christianity in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because I think humans need the understanding of the sacred. Uh, we 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 look for that, and so a lot of the traditional churches very much have like the sacred space. Like this is where the Eucharist sits. This is the priest, and you don't just go up and run around on the stage, you know, whenever you want. Mm. But if you go to like an evangelical church, there's nothing really sacred there, uh, unfortunately. And that's not to diss on evangelicals. There's some that works for a lot of them. Fine, whatever. Uh, but I think a lot of young people are really missing the aspect of the sacred. And so they're trying to find traditional roots. And I hope that leads more people to Christianity and not Christian nationalism. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something there about about missing traditional values or traditionalism or even just traditions you know i think i think like humans we value that very highly and the further back we can trace it the more the more sacred like you've said we we consider it to be so I, there's there's definitely something there i actually think that that covid in a way has had this weird um effect on it as well i think that's definitely pushed people towards it for for probably for a whole plethora of reasons but like have you have you seen that sort of thing happening as well? Yeah, and the, Kenneth Vaughn actually sent me a study once that actually demonstrated that uh, the more religious you are, the more you were willing to uh, take COVID precautions. The more you moved away from religiosity uh, and more towards nationalistic ideas, the less um, helpful you were with COVID uh, and stopping the spread. So I found that interesting. But yeah, I think COVID scared a lot of people for sure. I definitely push people in sort of the, the understanding that, you know, we're reminding people of their own mortality uh, and that, you know, maybe there is something beyond just this life. And so, you know, I would hope it would help wake people up uh, to, you know, the truth of what I would say is that Christianity is not only the most logical system, but the best system forward, mm -hmm. uh, because it is 
what has created some of the most growth for humanity in the past 2000 years. I mean, Christianity fostered education around the world, building of hospitals. The first Christ, the first abolitionist movements came out of Christianity. I mean, slavery was the norm in the ancient world, but Christians were the first ones to say, nope, this should be abolished. Uh, you know, they ended things like child brides, Christian missionaries did this, ended things like widow burning in India and, you know, foot binding. They fought against these types of things. So I, Christianity is responsible for a lot of the growth we've had in the past 2000 years. And I think if we want to keep progressing in the future, Christianity is the way to do it. Hmm. Yeah. The thing, one of the things that, that like sort of made me re-examine or at least examine what I believed was, and you're going to laugh at me here, um, was there was a moment in which um, people were starting to get their, uh, they were getting like tattoos of barcodes with their like vaccine status on it. And I was like, I was like, hang on, is this, is, is this the mark of the beast? Like I, I was just, I was like panicking a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Mm. Um, I was very isolated and you know, it was dark middle of like absolute crazy lockdowns. And you know, I was in a not particularly wonderful place, but, uh, but this brings us nicely at least around to the last thing I want to, to, to ask you about, which was um, revelations um so are we in the end times no i don't think so at all i'm actually not what you were describing recently as a premillennialist or a futurist uh so generally what a lot of christians think is that in the future there's going to be this antichrist who's going to set up a one world government and then a seven-year tribulation and then that'll bring about the end times that's yeah. not what i even think is going to happen i'm a post-millennialist so when we look at things like Revelations and the Olivet Discourse, we see th this is talking about things that happened in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple, a Nero persecuting Christians. So it says the beast has seven heads and ten horns. Okay, well, Rome was said to be the, the city on a seven hills. And Revelation 17.9 says the, horn, says the heads are symbols for seven mountains or seven hills. Mm -hmm. At the time of Nero, there were ten governor procurators under Nero, the ten horns, ten horns, seven Ten horns, seven heads, ten governors, uh, seven um, seven hills, kind of thing. So that's kind of, the beast. The mark six 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 in Hebrew is the it's the gematria of Neron Caesar. So it just means see, it just means Nero is what they're basically saying. Uh, and so what I think is actually happening is there there are uh, places like First Corinthians fifteen where it says Christ must reign until all enemies are put under his feet. Then the end will come. Or Psalm one ten. Our Psalm 2, I will give you the nations for your inheritance. This idea that Christ is supposed to uh, basically reign from heaven until he has sort of taken control of the whole earth slowly and gradually. Mark 4 says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It slowly grows to eventually consume the whole garden. Um, Matthew, I think, 13 says the kingdom of heaven is like a little yeast put into a loaf of, uh, of dough and then slowly fills till it all becomes leaven. Uh, Daniel's Two talks about a mountain that, you know, strikes the kingdoms of the world and then slowly grows to cover the whole earth kind of thing. Ezekiel 17 talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a small sprig that grows into a lofty cedar. So my view of the future is kind of what I was talking about with his research on all the benefits of Christianity. The kingdom of heaven just slowly, very gradually grows until the whole earth becomes Christian. That's supposed to take thousands of years to get there, but it slowly makes the world a much better place. And then Christ returns. Okay. So we're not going to be facing the, so, right. So basically Obama, Trump, neither of them were the antichrist. 
<laughs> no, but notice, notice how you brought that up. That's so distracting for Christians from the Great Commission. Like, we're supposed to be out spreading the gospel, like not trying to calculate the beast or the numbers. And like, that's not our goal. So, yeah, I, I think that's all wrong. I don't think that's actually what scripture is teaching. I think it's very much this idea of a post-millennialist future. Christianity is going to keep slowly growing, gradually making the world a better place. Sure, there'll be setbacks here and there. It's not going to be a it's perfect growth, like a linear growth, uh, but it's going to keep growing until the whole world becomes a new Eden. Well, that's a much more positive view of the future than, you know, <laughs> fire and brimstone and damnation. So that seems like a very lovely place on which to end things. Um, Michael, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, a fascinating conversation, and I can't wait to check out some of those videos that, that you've mentioned that I was not aware of, So, um, and some of the studies. Uh, is there anything you want to point people towards um, that we haven't mentioned uh, before we finish? No, just check out my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash inspiring philosophy. Well, there you go. Uh, links for everything we talked about will be in the description, uh, including your channel. So thanks very much, man. No, thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.